0: You may be familiar with this quote. It's, uh, it's, it's known to be from, uh, St. Augustine, but it says this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Anyone familiar with this quote? Raise your hands, show of hands, okay? Um, so, so this quote, I believe, is a great motto for the church. I believe this is a, a great mindset, a great mentality for us in the church, that we would be unified over the essential issues that, that compose the Christian faith, that We would uh, have liberty in areas that maybe aren't as clear, but in all things, we would just have a charitable mindset, a charitable heart, that we are for one another, that we love one another, we are for one another's good. And so really, this this statement, you could say, is a summary statement of our passage today. We're in Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can make your way there. Um, but I, I was recently at a event. It was, it was a gathering of local pastors from here in Loveland. We went up and had a prayer retreat in Estes Park. And it was an encouraging time for me just to gather with other men who've been uh, doing ministry in the season far longer uh, than our church has existed. And just to come together to pray to come together to pray for you guys, to pray for the church, to pray for the city, and, and just really have our hearts and our minds united uh, around our commonality instead of divided because of our differences. You know, if you pay attention to the news uh, or if you're, if you're ears to the ground in the church world, we always hear about the division. We always hear about the bad stuff, right? Bad stuff always makes the news. What about the good things that God is doing? What about the ways that God's people are coming together uh, and, and really reflecting his heart? And I just, I just was really encouraged by that. I wanted to share that with you guys just so that you would hear some good news about local churches in our city, that we're gathering as pastors to pray for one another, there are other pastors praying for you guys. And that's just a big deal. And we want to celebrate those things, you know, because the reality is statistically— that only 15% of our city right now is gathered in a place of worship. So that means 85% of people in this city right now this morning either don't have a local church that they call home or don't know Jesus Christ. And as a church, I think that's something that should break our hearts. I think that's something that should wake us up to say, wow, that's over eight of ten of my neighbors don't know Jesus. Do I care about that? We have a lot to pray for and, and a lot of work to be done in this city here in Loveland, Colorado today. But here we are, and we've been studying through uh, the epistle, the, this letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. And we've, we've looked at the first three chapters, which we've said is, is like the, the highly theological half of Ephesians. Uh, Paul is laying out these incredible, eternal realities of everything that is true of you, if your faith is in Christ and what has happened to you. And then in, in, in chapter 4, he switches gears. And it's like, so now what? In light of all these incredible truths, and in light of everything God has done and everything that God has declared you to be, what do you do now? Why, how do we live differently because of those things? And chapter 4 gets a little more practical in an everyday application sort of way and so if one thing uh is is for certain and and you've experienced this just as much as i have is that we know that the christian life is one of being in process all right anyone feel like they've arrived no no show of hands no no one wants to say man i got this christian life figured out and every day i'm just rocking it nobody come on somebody nobody all right So we say around here that we are all people in process, making progress by the grace of God. And there is not a day that goes by that that any one of us is not in desperate need of the grace of God, and hence why we said that we are becoming who we are in Christ. We're not yet fully there. We're in process of conforming to look more and more like Jesus. And the title of our message for today and for next week, at the top of your notes there, is Gospel Unity. In light of the fact that we are all in process, what does that look like for us to fight for unity within our church? What does it look like for us to, to give an accurate picture of Jesus to the culture around us and to one another? And so I want to read the entirety of of the next two weeks, the the scripture, just to to keep the the flow of thought from Paul in mind, and then we're going to dive deeper into the first 10 verses of chapter 4. So would you read along with me, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wave and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, Paul ended chapter 3 with this prayer that we would know the love of Christ, and as you've seen through the rest of chapter 4, this theme of love is very evidently woven through the entire chapter. And the end goal in this is, is to make us, as a body, being building one another up in love. That's the goal. And our love for one another is a reflection or a manifestation of God's love for us. And so we're going to look at today in the first 10 verses, the four main ingredients that contribute to gospel unity in the church. What has to happen for us to love one another well and to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ? We need to understand our gospel calling. We need to understand that we each have a responsibility to grow in gospel character. We're going to look uh, at at, um, gospel clarity and the importance of knowing the gospel, not just in our heads, but in our hearts. And then lastly, we're going to look at what does it look like for us to embrace gospel charity and and how does that flow out of our lives as well. So let's start by looking at our gospel calling. Verse 1, chapter 4. It says, therefore, uh, I, therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So he makes an assumption there. You have been called. I'm writing to you, church. You have believed. Therefore, you are called. And if you're called by the gospel, if you're part of the church, you have a gospel calling upon your life. And when Paul says, therefore, he's referring to the first three chapters of dense theology that he has just that we've just talked through. He's saying, in light of everything I've just said, therefore, do this. Okay? Let me give you a quick summary of the first three chapters. Chapter 1. Paul describes that if we are in Christ, he gives us the title of saints. If you're in Christ, you're a saint. If you're in Christ, it says you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you're in Christ, you are chosen and adopted. You are brought into the family of God. If you are in Christ, you are redeemed and forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ by faith alone. If you are in Christ, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit and you have a guaranteed eternal inheritance that cannot be taken from you. Then in chapter 2, Paul contrasts. Hey, you were all dead in your sin. Every human being is born in this world dead in their sin. But God, rich in mercy, made you alive in Christ. And he explains that we're all saved by grace through faith, that none of us can earn or deserve our salvation. There's nothing you and I can do except for receive the gift of God's grace through the message of the gospel. And then chapter 3, Paul goes on and he talks about, hey, and there's a mystery to this gospel that's now been revealed to the world. And the mystery is this, is that you Gentiles are now just as much a part of the family of God as the Jews. You see, the Jews are God's chosen people. And they had a little bit of a chip on their shoulder about it, right? Like, hey, we're special. God chose us. And Paul's saying, here's the mystery of the gospel. This is for every tribe, tongue, and nation. There are no stepchildren in the family of God. Everyone as a fellow brother or sister, child of God. That's what he explains, this this incredible mystery that has been revealed. And then last week, Jason did a phenomenal job walking us through the prayer of Paul for the church, where he just stops and prays. And Paul's like, God, I just want them to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, because if they know your love, it's going to change everything. God, fill them. Fill them with the fullness of who you are. So that's the first three chapters. And that's what comes before the therefore. And Paul is saying, in light of everything that I have taught you so far, these incredibly deep theological realities for all who are in Christ, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Live differently because of the gospel of your salvation. Be motivated by the eternal realities that Christ has given you life, eternal. And he has set you free from the bondage of sin and death. In Philippians one twenty-seven, Paul puts it this way. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's another way to say it. Live in a manner worthy of your calling. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning? Would you say, I have believed the gospel. I have embraced the gospel. If you would say, yes, this gospel calling is a calling upon your life. This applies to every single follower of Jesus Christ. And our gospel calling is to strive by the power of God's grace To live in a manner that aligns with the gospel that has set us free. And I say strive because we already talked earlier about how we never fully arrive. But that doesn't mean that we don't make every effort by the power of God to become more and more like Christ through the power he gives to us. So in other words, as we've subtitled this series, our call is to become who we are in Christ become more of what God has already declared us to be. Now, how do we go about living in light of our gospel calling? That's the next section here. It's pursuing gospel character. Pursuing gospel character, verses 2 and 3. He says, "...with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace." When any person is confronted with the realities of the gospel, you are, you are confessing. If you agree, if you embrace the gospel, you are confessing your need. You're saying, yes, I've fallen short of God's standard. I am in need of the grace of God. Therefore, when you come before God and you confess your need to him, you can't look around and say, man, I'm so glad I'm like, not like these other people especially within the church, right? There's no hierarchy of value or, or any sort of um, dichotomy between believers. We all come to Christ through the cross. It's a great equalizer. We all bow before the same king. Therefore, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. When Cheryl and I first got married, um, I'll just say we were a little zealous and we were leading a small group and uh, there was a a gal in our small group that said something that was biblically inaccurate and I just thought it was ridiculous. And so uh, instead of being humble and gentle and patient, seeking understanding, I just proceeded to tell her how ridiculous what she said was in front of the rest of the group. Okay. (laughs) And while I may have been right, Biblically, I was absolutely wrong biblically in the way I addressed her error, okay? And now as I look back on this, this experience and this time, this is what happened is, A, that person was hurt. You know, they felt publicly admonished and, and hurt in a way that I, I just know in my heart I didn't do right or well. But secondly, you know what it created in our group? It created an environment where nobody wanted to share anything. They're so like, oh my gosh, if I say something wrong, what's Matt going to do, right? Like, this guy's just going to like bust me down with truth, so I'm just, I'm just going to be quiet. I recognize that, and, and, and now, by God's grace, I'm like, man, I wish I would have had this first memorized or a little bit better understanding of what it looks like to walk in humility and to be patient and to be kind and gentle. I know I've said this before and heard it, hold, heard it in multiple places, but humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. When we're walking with a posture of humility, we care more about the good of those around us than protecting our own image, than pursuing our own agendas. Paul puts it this way in, second, or, uh, in Philippians 2, 3-4. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So don't do things only thinking about yourself. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. If we as a people are walking in humility, we're going to be thinking about one another more than we're thinking about ourselves. It's not, oh, I'm coming here to get. I'm coming to give and to be available, recognizing that God wants to use all of us for the good and health of his church. And here's the thing, is true humility is always married to gentleness and patience. You want to do a little litmus test on if you're being uh, humble in a situation. Say, Am I able to do this with gentleness and patience? Am I truly looking for the good of the other person in this situation? Because humility is not quick to start a fight. Humility is not quick to point out the blame. Humility is quick to seek understanding for the good of the overall church and and the motive of, of the good of the other people involved. And this means, just like in my story earlier about our small group, that we can be 100% right biblically. And at the same time, we can be 100% wrong biblically in the way we go about dealing with it. This is hard, isn't it? (laughs) That's why no one raised their hand and said, oh, I got this Christian life figured out. Because it's challenging. And we need the Spirit of God. We need His power, His help in this. Because you and I both know there are situations in our marriages. There are situations in our parenting. There are situations with our friends or our peer groups. There are situations in our workplaces. And sadly, there's even situations in the church where, where this is really difficult. And can have really destructive effects if we're not going about things with humility and gentleness and patience. Paul continues saying, that we are called to bear with one another in love. Some of you may uh, have older children, and uh, even for you with younger children, this applies, but I've seen historically that that kids can pretty much do about anything, and their parents will stick by their side. Like, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you do as a kid. Your parents are always going to love you. Now, they may show tough love or whatever that may look like, but they will always have a lifeline extended to you. They will not give up on you. And that's what I think about the picture that comes to my mind when it's bearing with one another in love. It's this idea that I'm going to long suffer with those that I love. I'm going to. I'm going to stay by their side. And I don't care uh, how many foolish things they do and continue to do. I'm not going to abandon them. That should be the heart. That should be our mentality within the church. Because you know what? Praise God, he doesn't give up on us. Praise God, he bears with us through our everyday junk. And he isn't like, oh, no, they're just too much. He doesn't throw in the towel on us. And so we shouldn't do that towards one another. Now, I recognize That for many people in this room, you would rather drink a can of gasoline than you would enter into conflict. There are people who just cannot stand conflict. Now, there's people that love conflict too much, right? There's a spectrum here. But there are some people that just like, I will do anything rather than having to, to face that confrontation or that friction in a relationship. And so I'd rather just bury it and ignore it. But that just propagates the problem. If we're not willing to uh, deal with things in a way that honors the Lord, there's going to be devastating ramifications for the church. And Paul says at the end of verse 4 here that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what's to drive us. As the are to say, hey, Hey, there's a lot of stuff that happens, but it's so important for us to love one another because that's how we reflect Christ to the the world around us that so desperately needs Him. That let's let's work through stuff. But let's let's fight for this unity. And, and the church that Paul is writing to, we need to be reminded it's made up of Jews and and Gentiles, right? These are these are people groups that historically have had some pretty massive friction. There's been War and, and division. And now in Christ they've come together and and they're saying, hey, you're all a part of the family of God now, Jews and Gentiles. And it's probably not exactly the same, but it's kind of like, hey, Democrats and Republicans, let's come together and worship. And for many of us, like, let's just not talk about our political affiliations because that's just going to create all sorts of strife, right? <laughs> They'll be like, colors on the seats, you know, to keep the peace. But here he's saying, no, 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 no. Christ is so significant. What he has done in bringing us into his family is such a big deal that any secondary issue, there needs to be grace and liberty there. And we need to be more concerned about fighting for our unity than trying to prove our point or always trying to be right in a given situation. And I've been married long enough to know that fighting to be right, never you never win, even if you're right. <laughs> Any amens? Okay. This word eager, it means to do quickly, to make every effort or to do your best. And Jesus put forth a pretty high bar in Matthew chapter 5 uh, when it comes to what we should do to be eager to maintain unity. This is what he says, Matthew five twenty three through 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So you're sitting in church You're worshiping, and the Lord brings somebody to your mind. Oh, they have something against me. Or, oh, I sinned against them. I haven't owned that. Jesus is like, you should have such an eagerness for unity that you should get up out of your chair and go make things right. That's a tall order. And I'm not saying do that right now. But maybe after the service, you do need to go do that with somebody. Because God calls us to be eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. Because here's the reality, guys, is that that you know just as much as I do that, that we are in desperate need of forgiveness of God every single day of our lives. There's not a day that goes by that we can't point to something and say, man, I need the blood of Jesus for that. Maybe it was a thought, maybe it was a word, maybe it was an attitude, just like, man, God, thank you. For forgiving me. And and, and we are called in scripture to forgive in the way that Christ has forgiven us. And when you think about that. That should radically change the way we would even try to harbor any kind of bitterness. Or any kind of resentment towards someone who's done us wrong. It's like who are we? God doesn't hold you. uh, He's not holding those sins over your head. He's forgiving you all the time. So who am I to hold that over somebody else? And to let bitterness grow in my heart, it does nothing but destruction within the church. And we are called to maintain unity in the bond of peace, which brings us to our next point, which is gospel clarity, verses four and through six. God says, "Here's why you should be eager about this. Here's why this is so important. Listen up, church. There is one body. There is one spirit." Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Friends, there is one gospel. There is one God. There is one Savior. There is one Spirit. There is one way of salvation. And all of us must come to Christ again through the cross. It's a great equalizer. It's the great motivator for us to understand with crystal clarity the gospel of our salvation because it's only when we understand it, not only in our minds but in our hearts, that it changes the way we interact with one another. That all of a sudden now I'm forced to be postured in humility because I'm humbled before the cross regularly. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-6, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So he's saying, this isn't something I conjured up. This isn't something I made up. This is a message I myself received. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And just as a side note for you, if, if anyone's ever wrestled with like, how do we know the scriptures are true? This this to me is one of those passages that Paul is writing that letter to the Corinthian church at a time where there are a ton of people still alive who actually were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul's logic here is saying, you know what? There's 500 people that saw him. Like, you need more proof than that? Go talk to these people. They're currently alive. And they saw Christ. And they would all testify on their life that he rose from the dead. But here we see first importance, the gospel. Jesus lived the perfect life you and I can never live. Jesus died the sacrificial death on the cross that you and I deserved. Jesus rose again, conquering the power of sin and death and extending eternal hope to all who would trust in him. That's the good news of the gospel. We don't have to do anything but receive the gift of, of God's grace, and when we receive it, our lives will never be the same. For us as a church, the gospel message needs to be the clear and central message of our lives. It has to be. If we get this wrong, we are missing the essential. If we get this wrong, we will be lacking the glue that God has provided to hold us together as one people who reflect him. And when the love, or, or excuse me, when the gospel is clear in both our minds and our hearts, our love for one another will abound. Our love will. That, that, that's a natural outflow of a right understanding of the gospel and a right love for God is that we can't help but love one another. It's like, I've been loved in a radical way that I never deserved, therefore I can go do that to everyone else, especially those in the household. Of God, which leads us to our last point, which is gospel charity. Gospel charity, verses 7 and 8, Ephesians 4. Paul continues, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. This is uh, Paul quoting a psalm, specifically Psalm 68, and let me read Psalm 68, verses 18 and 19 to you. It says this, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and he gave gifts to men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. So Paul is quoting this psalm where God is leading in triumph. He has provided salvation for His people, and in in addition to that, He has dispersed gifts among men. It's men and women. It's it's, it's a general, just mankind. That's what he did. He didn't only provide salvation, but he gave specific gifts to you and I so that we would function within the church in a way that we serve one another and build one another up. And what that means is that we need you and you need us. There's not a person on the planet that can say, oh, no, I don't need the church. Because God gives each one of us different gifts. And as we'll look at next week, it says that for the, the building up of the body. And if we are lacking body parts, we are going to be lacking health. Has anyone had a body part fail them? Yeah, everybody probably knows, okay? That's what happens when every body part is not actively doing their part within the church. We suffer. We can't function in the way God wants us to function. And here's the thing, is that we all share in the same gospel calling. We all are called to pursue the same gospel character. But the way and the manner in which we live that out in the context of the local church is going to look different for you depending on the way God has wired you and gifted you. Now, I'm not going to go dive into all the different spiritual gifts and all the different nuances of that, but it's it's the heart and the principle that Every child of God has value and has a place in God's family. There is no one in this room that can say, I'm insignificant. I don't play any part in God's house. It's simply not true. And Paul continues uh, in 1 Corinthians, or he says elsewhere, a very similar thing. He says, there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are a variety of service, but the same Lord. There's a variety of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone." To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's the purpose. He distributes gifts among men so that we would use them to serve one another. That's God's heart. That's God's intent. Not so that we can make a name for ourselves because of the gifts that God has given to us, but so that we can build the church up in love. That's an incredible act of God's charity towards us, His people, that He would distribute gifts as a way of showing us and teaching us that we need one another. That's why our mission statement is following Jesus together. Because we were never intended to follow Jesus alone. It doesn't work that way. Family doesn't work that way. Could you imagine living in your house with your family? You just like. Oh, I don't need any of you. I'm not going to talk to any of you. I'm just going to pretend like you're not here. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't function. At best, you're a dysfunctional family, right? And God says, no. Work together. Figure it out. I've given you everything you need. But do it in a spirit of humility. Brian Chapel, um, He's a president of the Covenant Theological Seminary, and he was one of my preaching professors, and, and he wrote this awesome commentary on Ephesians, and this is what struck me this week from that commentary. He says this, he says that Jesus has dominion over heaven and earth, and thus he has the authority to dispense gifts here as he wishes, to whom he wishes, in the proportion he wishes, and with the expectation that we will respect his authority to dispense his gifts among his people, as he knows best. And here's the kicker at the end. This is what he says. To despise others' gifts is to disrespect Christ's authority. Does that feel heavy? (laughs) That felt heavy to me when I read that. to, to, To despise other people's gifts is to disrespect Christ's authority. And essentially what you're saying, if you look at other people's gifts, like, oh, I wish I was like them. Oh, I want their gift. It's saying, like, you are saying when you say that that Jesus doesn't know what he's doing. Is anyone willing to publicly say that? No, king of the universe, he has no clue. He should have given me this gift. I would have done a better job at that. No. The king of the universe, because of his love and grace, brings us into his family and our calling is to be a faithful steward of what we are given to the glory of God and for the good of his people. That's our call, to use what we have that's all a gift of God for good and to respect Christ's authority in doing so. I think spiritual gifts are, are, are just such a, a great evidence of God's grace. It's such great evidence of God's care for his church that he, he gives us these, these multitudes of giftings. But I think the greatest act of God's charity was the fact that he came and he extended the hand of relationship to everyone who would call upon the name of Jesus Christ. The greatest thing God has done for you and I is not giving us gifts. It's giving us the gift of relationship with himself. That's the apex. That's the ultimate. That's the greatest thing that God has done for you and I. And we see this in Ephesians 4, 9 through 10, as we read the last two verses of our passage today. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended to the lower regions of the earth, that he came to earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Did you catch those last words? That he might fill all things. God just isn't in our midst like in some mystical, uh, mysterious, spiritual sort of way. God is actually present inside of you. If your faith is in Christ, he fills you. He is in you, and you are in Him. It's the greatest gift. It's intimate knowledge of God. It's the personal presence of our Savior in us. That's the greatest gift. And you and I know this for sure. When your relationships with other people in your life are going well, it's peaceful, right? It's joyful. If you were to say, hey, Uh, At the end of the day, what matters most? You're going to say, man, it's, it's the relationships. It's the people around me. It's those I care about. And at the same token, when relationships are not right, life is miserable. Can I get an amen? Okay. Thank you. It's miserable, and we know it. When relationships are broken and estranged, it is miserable. And God's saying, hey, listen, I came down to bring back together the most important relationship ever, creator with creation, God with his people, so that we could be united as one, so that there is no more animosity between us. And because I've taken care of your vertical relationship with me, that should change everything about your horizontal relationship with those in your life. God has been more generous than we realize in giving us the gift, not only of salvation, but the gift of His presence in our lives through the Holy Spirit, filling us and all who would call upon Him. I want to end with Psalm Chapter 33, which um, a psalm I've been challenged with recently and that I love. I'm going to read the bookends for you. Psalm says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And then the psalm ends like this. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. It is good and pleasant when God's people are unified. We are blessed with life forevermore and a picture of life forevermore when we one day are with King Jesus in his kingdom for all time with perfect relationship with one another, perfect relationship with God. But for now, we have a gospel calling on our lives to strive in humility, to be unified, to make every effort on our part to bring peace and joy and deep, real relationship within the body of Christ.